questions that a lot of people have, and even us as Christians, sometimes we struggle to get our heads around. And today, um, we are going to have fun with numbers. We are going to have fun with imaginary chocolate digestive biscuits. And I have made sure, I believe, there are real ones. We have made sure there'll be real ones for afterwards as well to make up for it. They won't just be in your head. The question today is, is the Bible true? Now, if you're here today, I can safely, we can safely assume that we all have searching questions between us. Questions and thoughts regarding God, regarding our existence. What can we rely on to find out what the answers are? Now, there, there are many sources, there are many sacred writings around the world and over the years, aren't there, that claim to tell us the truth and usually find out that most of them tend to con- contradict each other, so they can't all be true. Um, Christianity says that the truth is found in the person of Jesus and primarily he is revealed through what we call the Bible. The Bible is not, as we'll discover in a bit, the Bible is not a self-help book. It's not a book of rules as sometimes it's considered to be. It's not at all. In fact, the Bible is intended to be so much more than that. It's, not, it's less about how to live and more importantly, it's about who to live for. Um, it makes some bold claims. Let me see if my clicker works. Ooh, clicker. Ooh, let's see. No. Try again. Yeah. So, the Bible makes some very bold claims. In in the um, second letter to Timothy by um, an older um, man in the faith called Paul, he writes to a guy called Timothy, who is his spiritual son. And in his second letter to him, he says this in chapter 3, From verse 15, he says, You, Timothy, uh, from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture, this is what Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. There's three, I've made them bold for you to see, there's three um, elements there that are really important to these claims that Paul is making about scripture, about what was written by God's people for God's people in the world around. Talk about what is scripture? It is wisdom breathed out by God. It means it's originated by God and it means that behind the various human authors who I'll talk about in a moment, so behind them all, these human authors, there is a great author at work, orchestrating it and shaping this revelation of himself to mankind. That's what it means to be breathed out by God. Why has he done it? Well, it's in order to make us wise for salvation, is the language in in the text there. That word salvation in the original language of that word is talking about wholeness. Salvation is talking about the understanding that we as humans, we are broken. And if we look inside each, each one of us, let alone pointing the finger at others, we see humanity is pretty broken. There's something gone squiffy with the cogs inside of us. Humanity is broken and we need to be made whole again. Salvation is about being made whole again by and for God. How does that happen? Through faith in Christ Jesus. It's through Jesus that this wholeness is found. This is the claim that Paul is making about Scripture. So in the Bible's own words, it's saying that this is God's gift to find true wholeness as human beings and it's centred on Jesus. But the thing is, how can we trust that? Anyone could have written, all scripture is breathed out by God. What I'm writing is God's words. Anybody could have said that, couldn't they? Anyone could have 
written that? How can we trust that, surely? Well, there's a, an atheist author called Richard Dawkins. Uh, oh, you've heard of him. <laughs> he makes quite a bold claim. This is what he says. He says, the Gospels are the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are the four eyewitness biographies of this man Jesus that we'll be looking at in a moment. He says, the Gospels are not reliable accounts of what happened in the history of the real world. All were written long after the death of Jesus. All were then copied and recopied by fallible scribes who in any case had their own religious agendas. That's quite an accusation, isn't it? That's quite an accusation. Well, let's find out. He focuses on the Gospels, so let's do that as well. Let's focus on the fourth Gospel. John was written by one of Jesus' best friends on this planet. He's known as John the Evangelist. And this is what he says in his own biography of Jesus in the book of John, chapter 20, from verse 30. This is what John himself says. He says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in his disciples' presence, signs that aren't recorded in this scroll. There wasn't enough room. But he says, but these things are written so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's Son, and that believing you will have life in his name. So did John have an agenda when he wrote that? Yes, of course he did. But did Richard Dawkins have an agenda when he wrote what he wrote? Of course he did. Every writer has a purpose for putting pen to paper. Every writer has an agenda. Dawkins' agenda is to turn believers into unbelievers. John's agenda was to turn unbelievers into believers. So let's just take a look at who might be right, shall we? What I want to do, I want to give an overview of what the Bible is, just to make sure we're all singing from the same song sheet, so to speak, understanding its makeup. Um, I will then spend quite a bit of time just talking about the reliability and how we can trust it compared to other texts and documents around the world over the years. I will briefly touch on, um, just for the sake of time, we can't spend a lot of time, but I will briefly touch on contradictions. We see variations in the copies and between some of the books. Um, And there are claims of conspiracy, how some bits have been pushed out and so on and so forth. I will touch on that. But then I want to land on, there are fulfilled predictions in the Bible that actually uh, tie everything together in such a way that point in a certain direction. So, first of all, let's look at the quick overview. The word Bible, excuse me one moment. The word Bible comes from the Latin for books. It's actually plural. The Bible is not actually a book. The Bible is a collection of books. It's like a mobile library on your phone or in your hands. It's a, it's a collection of 66 books that were written across 1500, a time span of 1,500 years on three different continents in three different languages by 40 different authors, all from vastly different backgrounds. And each of these 66 books together, they fit together like an intricate jigsaw to produce a complete picture. They complement one another, and each of these books each gets to play their part in that story. Now, I'm sure you've probably heard of the Old Testament and the New Testament. What that means is the Old Testament is 39 of these books. Uh, they They are the Jewish scripture. They are what Um, you find in Judaism as their holy scripture. is what we call the Old Testament. There's 39 of these books, uh, written in Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic. Um, There's a lot of history, a whole ton of history in there. There's a lot of poetry, and there are some prophetic um, writings by God speaking to mankind through his prophets. They wrote down 
their message to humanity as well. We find that. And together, the history, the poetry, and the prophetic writings make up the Old Testament. That's 39 books. Then you get the New Testament. Um, it's written in Greek. It's written in common Greek. Uh, there's 27 remaining books make up the New Testament. Um, they are the four Gospels, the four biographies of Jesus. There's a little bit of history in the book of Acts. There's some prophecy towards the end in the book of Revelation. But in the middle, there is a whole ton of letters to and for Jesus' followers after he's arrived. And so what you get is this bigger picture of the Old Testament setting the scene for this coming promised great rescuer for broken mankind. That's what the Old Testament is all about. It's promising this coming rescuer. Then you get the Gospels where this rescuer arrives. And then you have the New Testament where his followers write and proclaim as a result of him having arrived to fulfill the Old Testament. Does that make sense? And so, suddenly there, when we look at that overall picture, we suddenly realize there's a hinge here. That in order to understand the Old Testament history and the writings, the prophetic writings and so on, and then to understand the New Testament letters and so on, we need to focus on this key in the middle, this hinge. We need to focus on the gospel accounts of Jesus. Jesus is the key to unlocking the Old Testament and the rest of the New Testament. And so, we need to ask, we need to focus on the Gospels. For the time we have today, let's focus on the Gospels. We need to ask the question, are the Gospels themselves reliable? If they unlock the Old Testament and the rest of the New Testament, are they reliable in and of themselves in the first place? That's going to be what our main focus is going to be. So, how do we do that? Well, let's just park that to one side for a moment, and let's talk about another JC. I'm assuming we've all heard of Julius Caesar. Yes, the Roman Emperor Gaius Julius Caesar is his full name. Did Julius Caesar exist? Yes. yes. How do we know Julius Caesar existed? Writings. Writings, historical references. Absolutely. We also get statues of him. We get coins with his face on. And there are writings of him, by some by him, which actually we'll be looking at in a moment, Writings by Julius Caesar himself. Um, but there are others, including Cicero and Plutarch. These historical writers wrote about this man of history. We can trust all that together to know that he definitely existed and was definitely Roman emperor, and he definitely did his exploits. And so we can apply the same question to, did Jesus exist? Did this Jesus of Nazareth that the Gospels talk about, did he exist? Well, let's look outside of the Bible. Let's not just look at the Bible just yet. Let's look outside of the Bible. These are some of the writers who wrote about the man Jesus. None of these were fans. None of these were followers of Jesus. They were non-fans of Jesus. And the one you see down here, you've got um, Tacitus down here at kind of 7, 8 o'clock on the dial. Tacitus was as big then in the ancient world as J.K. Rowling is now. J.K. Rowling wrote the Harry Potter book. She is internationally famous and hugely successful to the tune of billions. He was as famous as she is now back then. And he, um, he had sculptures made of him and all sorts. He was so popular, so famous. And he wrote a very strong attack against Jesus, mentioning his execution, talking about the oppression of Jesus' followers. He writes about these things. He was not a fan, but he wrote about this stuff happening. 
You've got Celsus over on 3 o'clock. You've got Celsus, for example. I won't go through them all. But Celsus himself, he attacked Jesus in his writings. Um, he attacked Jesus' supernatural acts as being dangerous. And he wrote in a time when people would remember what their grandparents were eyewitnesses to. Just a few decades later, they could say, this guy's writing about this stuff that Jesus did. Did you see that? Yeah, absolutely, I saw it. And then you've got Josephus just below Celsus there, kind of about four or five o'clock on the dial. And Josephus wrote about Jesus. He was just a historian at the time, and he even talks about the reports of Jesus' resurrection, about this empty tomb, and Jesus' followers, what they were saying, and what they were doing as a result. And so, if we get this whole list of people who were non-fans, why would they write about someone who didn't exist? We cannot say that Jesus didn't exist. You might hear people saying that. He's just a myth. He was made up. We physically cannot say that. But then what about the Gospels themselves? What do they say? Can we trust them? What are we going to do? We're going to ask two questions about the Gospels. There's, um, there's a scholarly test just for secular scripts, not just for um, the Gospels or the Bible, but for ancient manuscripts. There is a means of judging how reliable they are and we can trust what they said back then. Um, it's called textual criticism and it asks two questions. This is what it does. This is the test Two questions to ask of an ancient, um, copies of an ancient document to know we can trust what it said. Um, first question is, how many copies of the ancient manuscript do we have in our possession? And then the second question is, what is the time span between the original document and the earliest copy we still have in our possession today in modern times? How many copies were there, uh, do we have and what's the time span between the first original document and the earliest copy? Let's use two examples. To compare. There we go. We talk about Julius Caesar. Let's use his own writings. He wrote some journals during the Gallic Wars of his exploits and his army's exploits, what they got up to. He wrote his Gallic War journals. We'll compare that with the four Gospels, which were written by and from eyewitnesses. Let's do the first column first. Let's look, let's apply textual criticism, those two questions. Let's apply that to Julius Caesar's war journals. We'll look at when they were written. When is the earliest copy that we have? When did that arrive? And therefore work out the gap between the two and see how many copies, decent copies, we have in our possession. When was his written? Uh, 58 to 50 BC was when Julius Caesar wrote his war journals during the Gallic Wars. Now, when is the earliest copy? When did that arrive um, that we have in our possession today? If you know the answer, don't shout it out. Anybody else want to have a guess? of when after 58 to 50 BC, when did the earliest copy that we possess today, when did that turn up? Who wants to risk a number? Bob's shaking his head, he doesn't want to risk it. Anybody else want to shout a number? Don't have to. 200 years later? Anyone else? Want a razor? I'll see your 200, I'll give you 300. I'll need a little hammer, don't I? The, f the earliest copy we possess today is, how many clicks do I need to do? 900 AD, which means a gap of 950 years later is when the copy, that we, the earliest copy we, have still, we, we still own around the world is when it first turned up. How many copies? Who wants to take a guess at how many copies we have today? Two, Two copies? We have 9 to 10 
decent copies. Now, according to textual criticism, according to secular academic scholars around the world today, they would say that that means that we can trust what Julius Caesar wrote, what we, we see the, these copies saying is what he wrote. That is enough to say that Julius Caesar's Gallic War journals are wholly reliable. A gap of 950 years until the earliest copy and 9 or 10 copies in our possession. That is more than enough to know that that is a reliable set of documents. Let's compare it to the Gospels. Uh, written when? Uh, there was this four Gospels. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Between them, they were written at different times in different decades. Um, between 40 and 100 AD. It's actually John's Gospel was probably 1995 AD. I'm just being really generous to make it look even bigger. Uh, 40 to 100 AD. Um, now then, the question is, the earliest copy that we possess today... When did that turn up? Who wants to have a guess? If you don't know the answer, have a guess. What year did the first copy, earliest copy we possess arrive? Boom. 130 AD. And so anywhere between 30 to 90 years, depending on which, which um, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke or John, which of the copy is. Um, the earliest 130 AD is a fragment of John we have. It's called the P52 fragment. You can go to a library in Manchester and see it. It's available for public viewing in a display case. You can go and see it. Um, but there are reports now. There is a, uh, a copy of Mark that is from 80 or 90 AD, even earlier. It's just still being verified and worked out and so on and so forth. So possibly even a smaller gap than that. But let's, we can safely say... A uh, 30 to a 90 year gap compared to Julius Caesar's 950 year gap. We're already a tenth or even smaller of that gap. The question is how many copies of the Gospels do we have in our possession today? Ancient, in the original language, copies. Who wants to take a punt at how many compared to Julius Caesar's 9 or 10 decent copies? Who wants to guess? 50? 250, 1,000. Oh, my life. It's getting high. And what did you say, Linda? 300. How many do we have compared to Julius Caesar's nine or ten decent copies? We have 5,000 in Greek, 10,000 in Latin, and 9,300 in other languages. Together, we've got 24,300 early copies of those original manuscripts. So we can see Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars are wholly reliable. We can see that the historical writings... <laughs> of Jesus, um, they beat the accepted history of the Romans by about 2,500 to 1. We can't say that the Gospels are unreliable historical documents, can we? So, the next question then. If we can see that what we get to read is what was written, then the question then is about their content and what they actually say. You need to remember these are eyewitness accounts. Uh, Matthew and John were two of Jesus' closest friends, walked this planet around with him, followed him for years. They wrote what they saw. Matthew wrote what he saw. John wrote what he saw. Uh, Mark's Gospel, um, he did a lot of travelling with Peter, who was another one of Jesus' closest friends, and he wrote down all the stories that Peter told him. He, it's effectively Peter's Gospel, because Mark did all the writing, he gets the credit, he gets the author credit. It's effectively Peter's Gospel. So again, it's an, it's an immediate eyewitness account. And then Luke, he says at the beginning of his... Uh, gospel in the first three verses of chapter one he says you know i've interviewed eyewitnesses and i've written down what they said he went around and asked people to tell him the stories of what they saw they are all 
eyewitness accounts. So to say that Jesus is a myth, at very least, is a modern-day argument. It's only the amount of time we've had since then that gives us the luxury of trying to get away with saying that kind of conspiracy theory. It's not possible. Even the Jewish Talmud is their um, holy their leader's writings in the second century. Um, even there it declares Jesus as a sorcerer. These are the Jews, the people who are hostile to what Jesus came to say. They declare that Jesus was a sorcerer and he was enticing the people to apostasy, enticing the people to turn from their faith. Um, they, actually, they happily accepted that Jesus existed, that he did and said these supernatural things along with those other writers that I mentioned earlier. It's distance that has allowed us to throw around the fairy tale accusation. But then, okay, we still see there is a gap. You see when they were written. To be fair, there is still a gap between when they were written and when the events actually happened around 30, 31 AD when Jesus was in his full-time ministry. Um, and when he was killed and when he rose again. There's a bit of a gap between when it happened and when they were written, anywhere from 10 to 60 years. Well, if I said that Sheila... Where's Sheila? Sheila not here today. There she is. If I said that Sheila shaved her head in her 20s... Did you? No, okay. Did you shave your head in your 20s? Because what would be the chances if I got that right? But if I said... That would have been brilliant. I want photos. If, if, that had, if I had said that Sheila shaved her head in her 20s, Bill could come along and go, uh, that's not true, I was there, she did not categorically shave her head in her 20s. No matter how convincingly I said it, some of you might have chosen to believe me, but straight away, Bill and I went can go, no, didn't happen. Well, even if Bill was lying to cover up the fact that Sheila shaved her head in her 20s, <laughs> No, it didn't happen. Well, we could find out some of Sheila's childhood friends and say to them, well, we heard that Sheila had shaved her head in her 20s and Bill's saying she didn't. What do you say? They go, I was there. She did, didn't you? The truth or the lie, whichever way it goes, is still open to uncovering the truth of it because of eyewitnesses decades later. And so... The Gospel accounts had hundreds and even thousands of eyewitnesses, even in the ensuing decades, to uh, support or falsify their tellings. And at the time, no one contested what they said. Eyewitnesses supported them, did not contest with them. These events must really have happened. Now, there are other accusations that are thrown at the Gospels. There are um, talk about variations or contradictions between the copies or between some of the books, some of the details. There are differences in detail. They are there. But most of those can be explained straight away by the challenges of translation anyway. Uh, things can get lost in translation. Commas can get put in the wrong place. And the New Testament is written in Greek, had no punctuation. To translate into English, we have to work out where the punctuation goes. That's not always easy, and sometimes a comma in a different place can change some of the meaning of a sentence. That can happen. But I've got to say this. Has anybody here read Les Miserables by Victor Hugo? Yeah. Anybody read War and Peace, Leo Tolstoy? Yeah, it's a cracker, isn't it? Uh, and it's a big cracker, but it's a good one. Uh, Anna Karenina, Leo Tolstoy again. See, there's my girl. See, I've trained her well. Well done, Fred. Uh, if, they, if you get any other take-home today, read those books. They're brilliant. But the thing is, we read them in English, 
we understand that some nuance may be lost because we're not reading it in the original French or the original Russian. There may be differences in detail when they get translated into English, for example. But no one suggests that you can't get the heartbeat and the power of the story um, when you're reading it in another language. Is that true? And so there might be some difference in detail, but there's no loss of the main message, the main heartbeat of what it's saying. And so even when it comes to um, police officers today, when they take statements, police would be, uh, they would distrust two eyewitness statements to an incident if they said the exact same thing. It makes them very, very suspicious. Because they're then thinking of conspiracy and corroboration between the witnesses. The Gospels, having some slight differences, help us out with that. These are people writing from their perspective about what happened. And sometimes there's differences. I know, when I was, when I was a paramedic and I had to do police statements for murder scenes and car crashes and things, I would say, yeah, the body had uh, red jeans on and, and uh, blonde hair. And, and everything I could see in my head. And eventually they write, write it all out and go, you sure about this? Yeah, yeah, sign here, sign here. He goes, actually, he's wearing blue jeans and he's a brunette. Was, that, was he? My, my memory is abysmal. However, it didn't change the fact that someone had been murdered and they were lying in a certain place. Does that make sense? And so there are three writers, for example, who's historians back you know, 2,000 years ago who wrote about the Great Fire of Rome in AD 64. And all three of those writers, they disagree about where Nero was at the time and whether he was singing or playing his violin. Now, that doesn't discredit the recordings. Because either way, we can still be sure that the Great Fire of Rome happened and Nero was shirking his responsibilities. It doesn't make any difference to the main heartbeat of what the story is telling us. These differences in detail, they make no difference to the main message. Now, I'll just say that I mentioned about conspiracy as well. There are claims of conspiracy about things being, you know, not being included in here that should be included and so on and so forth. Um, I mentioned earlier that these 66 books, they fit together like a beautiful jigsaw. They really do. People have tried over the years to discover a surprise 67th book that trumps it all, etc., etc. It reveals the real truth. Each time they do, they, they uncover another, another book over the centuries. Um, they make themselves very obvious that they don't complement what we already have. Uh, they have no reliability in authorship, for example, or they just outright contradict what the rest of the books say and become very obvious they don't fit the jigsaw. They're the wrong shape. They just don't go. There's no holes left. And there are claims of um, political or religious leaders throwing books out of the collection because they didn't suit what we wanted, etc., etc., for our control and our place of power, etc., etc. In fact, those, are those, are, those claims and those moments are referring to times when there were fervent groups, outside groups, who were wanting to force other pretty wonky, I've got to say, other writings in, and those in a position to safeguard what we have kept it so. It wasn't pushing books out, it was stopping wonky books from getting in. You can look them up like the, is the Council of Nicaea, 325 AD. Feel free to go and find out for yourself. For yourself. Don't just take my word for it. Um, and so we can see our contradictions and conspiracies, actually, they just, they just don't stand up on their two legs. Where I want to finish is talking about the fulfilled predictions of what had come before Jesus. Because if we can now trust the Gospels to be reliable according to their original content, that what we see is what we got, 
And if they, the Gospels, they believe that the Old Testament is divine revelation and the other New Testament writings were written by those same characters involved in those historical events at the time, then if that's the case, then we can look at what the Gospels say and what the rest of Scripture says between them. And together they say that there is a man who is deeply embedded in history, who claimed to be God himself, who did some amazing supernatural things to back up that claim, and who fulfilled exactly what the Old Testament promised he would be doing, even though it was written many, many centuries before he actually arrived. There are many predictions in the Old Testament about this coming rescuer, at the barest minimum 700 years before he appeared. Many things he could not have conspired to have fulfilled, to decide what bloodline he comes from, to decide where he was born, for example, let alone the things that were done to him. It was physically impossible for him to have conspired to make these things happen, and yet he does. There are many. In the Old Testament, we have the prophet Micah. We have the book of Micah written by the prophet Micah, God speaking through him, and in there, he talks about where the Messiah will be born. We have Isaiah, who talks about how he would be born. We have Isaiah again and Genesis. We have the book of 2 Samuel. That in there, it talks about where the, where, uh, which bloodline that uh, the Messiah would come from. We have the prophet Hosea in his book. He talks about that the Messiah would become a refugee early on. And Jesus did in his family. They had to escape to Egypt shortly after, kind of in his kind of toddler years. Um, Isaiah, again, he talks about where the Messiah would later live and come out from in Galilee, somewhere else. Isaiah, again, and Zechariah, um, they talk about a lot more detail about what this Messiah would do, the things he would get up to. Isaiah, again, he's a, he's a, he's a busy one, that lad. Isaiah and the book of Psalms, um, they talk about how the Messiah would be despised and rejected and that he would be killed. There's some very specific details about this man's death. Very specific. No broken bones when normally in that method of crucifixion they would have their bones broken and so on and so forth. Very, very specific details. And then the book of Psalms again and even Jesus himself before it happened predicted that he would rise again from the dead. And that's a whole other sermon about an empty tomb and the evidence for it. It's a huge great wealth of evidence for that empty tomb back then as well. Predicted by Jesus himself but also by the Psalms hundreds, up to a thousand years before it happened. Now, the chances of one person fulfilling just eight of those prophecies is near imp- mathematically near impossible. Just eight of them. Mathematically near impossible. This, here is how unlikely it is. Here come the imaginary chocolate digestive biscuits. Just, you might want to close your eyes if it's helpful for you to picture this, but just imagine the entire UK. So you've got all of England, all of Scotland, all of Wales, all of Northern Ireland. I'm going to ask you to cover them, cover the entire UK in a big pile of chocolate digestives. Okay, can you picture that? You have covered England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland in a big pile of chocolate digestive biscuits and I want you to make sure that that pile is two feet deep. You've got a two foot deep pile of chocolate digestives across the entire United Kingdom. And while you're laying out this pile, I'm going to ask you to lick the chocolate off one of those biscuits and hide it in the pile. Anywhere you like, hide it in the pile, bury it. Now I'm going to ask you to blindfold a friend, 
and ask them to wander around the UK for as many days as they like, in whichever direction or whichever route they like, wandering around this two-foot-deep pile of biscuits across the UK, blindfolded, and at a random moment of their choice, to stop, stoop down, reach into the pile, and pick up one biscuit. Now, the chances of them picking up the one biscuit with the chocolate licked off is the same chances as one person fulfilling just eight of these prophecies together. Those are the chances. The thing is, Jesus of Nazareth didn't just fulfill eight prophecies. He fulfilled 300 of them. 29 of them in one day. Now, I'll leave that up to you. But I think we can safely say that that is either the biggest coincidence in time internal, or he really is God. He really is who he said he was. He really is the promised Messiah. And so, with that in mind, we can safely say we can, we can, that we can trust the four biographies of Jesus, we can trust the Gospels, they are reliable, that we can look back and see how he fulfills all those promises, the earlier writings made, which, like I say, is either the biggest coincidence in the universe ever, or he really is God. And then we can also look forward and understand what the subsequent letters in the New Testament were all about, and how we can put them into practice ourselves, what it means to follow Jesus. And so to say that the Bible is outdated, or the Bible is historically inaccurate, or it's just a load of myth, or the Bible is just full of contradictions, shouldn't listen to it, none of that stands up in court at all. And there's so much more we could have included today, there's so much we haven't exhausted the subject. There's so much physical and archaeological evidence that backs up all the things that the Bible says. You can go to the British Museum and see a whole ton of it. In fact, I might organise a trip. I know someone who can do a tour of the British Museum that shows you all the evidence that backs up what the Bible has to say. I might organise that sometime. But you can also not just look at the physical, archaeological evidence. You can also just even just investigate the Bible itself. And when you see how these different books written in different languages over such a large time scale from different authors, how they interweave when you see the threads and the patterns that uh, occur across these separately written books, I can, I can assure you it will blow your mind. The more you dig deeper, the more this blows your mind. At the very least, I trust that today has helped with at least some of your questions. Um, but when the Bible says that all Scripture is breathed out by God, it's just another way of saying that there is a great author at work. And I can assure you, that the more you read this, the more you discover that for yourself. Don't just take my word for it. If you've never read the Bible, I ask that you give it a go. And if you do already read the Bible, can I urge you just to read it more? Because time and time and time again, it points to the one person, Jesus. You see, the Bible is not a rule book. It's not just a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's not even a self-help book. The Bible, actually, this, if you want a sentence to sum up the Bible, this is a love story between faithful God and unfaithful man. Please don't dismiss it. Please don't despise it. Instead, dig into it and discover the treasure inside. Yeah? Yeah. Would you like to stand with us? We're going to do what... Christians love to do, we enjoy very much, we already started early, we love to sing songs to and about this Jesus. If you're a visitor here, you're welcome to join in with us, you're welcome to just enjoy 
listening to us instead. Some of us have got good voices. Uh, <laughs> at the very least, I invite you <coughs> to consider this Jesus we're singing about. The words again will be coming up on the screen. And ask yourself, what if he's real? Let's sing.